Welcome back to Better Off Ball, The Life in 147 Days. I am your host and storyteller, Andrea Wilson-Woods. Whether you're watching the video or listening to the podcast, I really appreciate you tuning in. And if you are watching the video, you will see I am even paler than I normally am. I have walking pneumonia at the time of this recording, which is mid-June. Unfortunately, was misdiagnosed for over a month. Luckily, I finally took my own advice and got a second opinion and went back to my doctor who I didn't see initially and got an x-ray and sure enough, I have walking pneumonia. So, but don't worry, I'll be fine. And let's just get started. Days 59 through 61, Friday through Sunday, July 13th through the 15th, 2001, one smiley face. I am on a different plane when I dance. All my troubles and problems disappear for that one brief moment. In my head, I see myself growing wings and spiraling again and again, letting all my headaches and stress vanish through my body and its movements. I feel graceful and beautiful, even if I'm not technically amazing. Dancing has a hidden factor that I cannot describe in words that hits a nerve and just lets everything flow within me. It is almost as if I am cured from something when I am dancing, but I am not quite sure what I have been cured of once I stop. Excerpt from Adrian's essay for dance class. Today, Adrian has her first appointment with Nina, a licensed RN and practitioner of alternative medicine. We met Nina on the last night of Adrian's first round of chemo. I trust her because she is familiar with Adrian's illness and she approaches it holistically, an attitude Adrian and I both appreciate. We don't know what to expect, but the 90 minute session consists of massage and meditation. I doze off waiting in the lobby, even though I normally don't fall asleep sitting up. A rejuvenated Adrian emerges, almost glowing with serenity, as if the war in her body has agreed to a ceasefire. Energetic and pain-free, Adrian asks how long it will take to get to the mall. We are on a mission to find the perfect dress for a benefit being thrown in Adrian's honor. The Stage Door Theater in Agora Hills is donating tonight's proceeds from their production of the seven-year itch to Adrian for her medical care. The owners offered to produce the affair because I had previously acted and directed in two shows there. The unexpected generosity of acquaintances helps balance out the stings of comments from supposed friends. As Adrian and I soon discover, the best time to go prom dress shopping is during the summer. She spots a full-length, royal blue, sleeveless gown with a tank-style top and an A-line bottom. The dress fits well. While it is too large in places where Adrian continues to lose weight, it doesn't constrict her abdomen, which remains swollen by her liver and spleen. At 80% off, we can afford the $20 dress. Adrian also buys a black studded belt for herself and a Polaroid camera for Nadia's birthday. We complete our shopping excursion with shakes and fries at Johnny Rockets, our favorite mall food. Watching Adrian munch on fries like any typical teenager, I think how today is almost perfect. Adrian invites Eli to attend the benefit with us. We take John's car, of course. Adrian rides shotgun, fiddling with my camera I tell her to look back at me. Even though her olive eyes are half closed, 
She appears fully awake, as if she knows something we don't. I cock the camera at an odd angle. Hurry up, Sissy. Snap. Adrian yawns. That picture will be gorgeous. Many people tend to benefit, which raises nearly $1,000. Actors I worked with in the past show up, as well as close friends like Anya, Alex, and Anya's brother, who happens to be in town. Adrian tells me afterwards she felt guilty for falling asleep during the play, but I tell her not to worry about it. Everyone is happy she is well enough to be here. We take many pictures after the show, and friends groan every time my camera freezes. But I love my 10-year-old 35mm Minolta and refuse to buy a new one. Wait, wait, hold on. I've got it now, I say more than a few times. Formerly camera shy, Adrian strikes a pose in her new dress and points to her head, where she applied body glitter earlier that evening. My new look, she says. I smile. She has the confidence of a runway model. The atmosphere is festive, and I realize I haven't felt this relaxed in a long time. The local newspaper, The Acorn, interviews us, and I can see John grimacing because the reporter pays little attention to him. John thinks people don't ask his opinion because they don't understand his role in Adrian's life. He doesn't realize his constant frown, his stiff arms, and his penetrating eyes don't make him the most approachable person. He's different at home, away from strangers. I wish they could see what Adrian and I do. John loves her like a father. I wake up at 1.30 a.m. to faint cries. Sissy... Sissy. I find Adrian in the bathroom, trying to poop. It's right there, Sissy. I can feel it. I give her paracoles with an orange juice chaser. All modesty aside, Adrian allows John to hold her hand while I grab our trusted notebook. I look for the smiley faces. Yesterday, no. Day before yesterday, no. Oh God, that can't be right. Well, when was the last time? asked John. I meet Adrian's eyes. She must know. I feel like I'm ratting us both out to the school principal. According to this, I wave at the notebook last week. Damn, that's allotted. Damn me for not realizing, for not asking. What? I thought you were handling this, John raises his voice. Don't fight, Adrian whimpers. What are we going to do? John squeezes Adrian's hand. Hang in there, kiddo. We'll figure something out. Our immediate solution is to wait. Constipation is not usually life-threatening. 30 minutes later, Adrian has a small bowel movement and releases some gas, but she still cannot move. Time to call the hospital. The doctor on call prescribes Marilax. I rushed the one pharmacy near us that is open 24 hours to pick it up. Despite the urgency, a miscommunication between the hospital and the pharmacy causes a delay. John and I attempt to ease Adrian's anxiety and pain by joking about Danny Glover and Lethal Weapon 2. Hey, kiddo! At least there's no bomb under the toilet. But even she isn't laughing now. Damn, where's that prescription? Adrian takes the first dose of Marilax at 3.15 a.m. The doctor said we would see results right away. We are more hopeful. 
We allow 30 minutes to pass before declaring the Marilax a complete failure. We call the doctor back and he says Adrian needs to be admitted to the hospital right away. He doesn't realize Adrian hasn't moved in three hours. Her legs are numb. She can't stand up on her own and John and I can't lift her without help. I call 911 and explain the situation without getting hysterical. I explicitly request paramedics with pain medication due to Adrian's condition. The operator assures me she will send the appropriate team to our home. I wait outside to flag them down since no one can find our house. John sits with Adrian doing hand duty. When the paramedics arrive, I apprise them of the situation, but they are reluctant to give Adrian anything at all. I fly into rage and scream at the top of my lungs. You have to help her. She can't move. I told the 911 operator all this. Please help my baby. John rushes outside and tells me to go in the house. He will handle it. Tears stream down my face. I know part of my anger is misdirected. I'm mad at myself because I could have prevented this problem from happening. I should have asked Adrian about going to the bathroom. She's not one to volunteer that information. People love to tell fart jokes, but nobody likes to talk about their own shit. I don't know what John says to them, but the paramedics agree to give Adrian nitrous oxide to relax her. Even though Adrian doesn't want two strange men to see her stranded on a toilet, trapped by pain, she is open to any option that will end her misery. Adrian inhales the invisible fumes, and within minutes, the laughing gas eases her suffering enough for the paramedics to lift her to a standing position. I quickly pull up her panties. They carry her to the stretcher, and I climb in the ambulance for the short ride to St. Joe's, wondering if Dr. Lynn, she has tumors in her liver and lungs, will be there. By a quarter after four, I am signing the familiar pink Patients' Rights and Responsibilities form. Dr. Lynn isn't working. Instead, we meet the affable Dr. Wallace, who gives Adrian Dilaudid for the pain and Ativan for her increasing anxiety. Her blood tests are normal. The doctor on call from Children's Hospital wants Adrian transferred there immediately, but we decide to stay at St. Joe's. Adrian likes Dr. Wallace, and if she is only constipated, I am sure he is more than capable of handling the matter. Sometimes the doctors at Children's Hospital act as if no other doctor is competent when it comes to their patients. He's not curing cancer. He needs her to poop. John and I stay in the room while Dr. Wallace prepares for the disimpactment, the removal of feces in the rectum, by doing an initial rectal exam. Despite the enormous amount of medication, Adrian's eyes water. It hurts. I soothe her with words since I'm unable to touch her. Adrian allows us to be nearby, but not so close that we might see anything. I feel helpless. I see Dr. Wallace shaking his head. He tells Adrian he's finished and covers her up. Then he walks toward us. I don't feel stool in the colon, but there appears to be a mass. Perhaps a teratoma, he says. Damn, I didn't bring the medical dictionary. A what? I ask. A type of tumor. I'm going to call Children's. I think she should be transferred now. Minutes later, a nurse hands me a pen and a new white form to sign, a patient transfer summary and acknowledgement. Someone else already filled in the boxes. 
I notice under diagnosis, Dr. Wallace, or perhaps a nurse wrote, constipation, comma, possible rectal mass. According to the paper, Dr. Feinstein is receiving the transfer. I'm relieved the doctor on call will not be there to say, I told you so. Two months ago, we didn't even know the disease ravaging Adrian's body existed. I want to go back to the before when things seemed normal. Our lives were by no means perfect, but now this black hole called cancer is using its gravitational force to suck us in deeper every day. Even light cannot escape a black hole. And isn't that what hope is? That cliched light at the end of the tunnel? As we travel from one fluorescent lit emergency room to another over the hill, I long to see Adrian walking outside in the sunshine. A momentary coldness creeps into my heart as the black hole says to me, you may never see that image again. We wait for hours in the emergency room because the oncology ward has no beds available. John and I take turns getting breakfast in the cafeteria. When I show up, I see the cook behind the counter. Two eggs, sunny side up, he asks. I nod. Haven't seen you in a while. I nod again because I am too tired to speak. I don't tell this nice man I am not supposed to be here today. The third round of chemo starts next week. I don't tell him how sad it makes me he remembers my order. He senses my reluctance and asks the person behind me what he wants. I glance at the stranger over my shoulder. Just wait. If you spend too much time here, he'll memorize your order too. Adrian finally has a CAT scan at 3.30 p.m., but the results are far from conclusive. Dr. Feinstein reads the results as normal with some stool in the rectum. The radiologist concedes there is no abnormality, but he sees lots of stool in the colon. When Adrian's oncologist, Dr. Marco, arrives, he comes up with a different conclusion. He agrees stool is present, but he is concerned about what appears to be a pouch in the rectum, possibly an abscess. What the hell? I don't know whom to believe. At least they all agree Adrian needs to go to the bathroom. Since the rectum is a perfect host for bacteria, oncologists are careful about administering any medication anally because cancer patients cannot afford to have infections. Although reluctant to do so, Dr. Marco prescribes a suppository and Adrian has a bowel movement 20 minutes later. If I had known it would be that easy, I would have given her a suppository myself at home. When I ask about the teratoma, Dr. Marco says we will discuss it next week after he reviews Dr. Wallace's notes. Feeling hungry for the first time in 24 hours, Adrian eats a salad and falls into a deep, drug-induced sleep. Anya and Alex bring us clothes, toiletries, and videos from the house. John and I watch Jurassic Park. As we begin to watch the sequel, The Lost World, Adrian wakes up experiencing intense cramping that leads to diarrhea. I help her walk to the bathroom next to her bed, but she shuts the door in my face. I can do it, sissy, she says. Poor kid. 
She's had enough humiliation to last a lifetime. I don't note the diarrhea with happy faces in the notebook, since it is not the desired outcome. The doctors and nurses are befuddled. The suppository should have worn off, so they speculate the diarrhea might be a delayed side effects of the Marilax. Somehow I doubt it. Even though Adrian feels nauseated too, she's still hungry and attempts to eat a few french fries. I need to throw up, but I can't, she grumbles. The doctors hope Adrian's regular dosage of Dilaudid will counteract the diarrhea and constipate her. Here we go again, the seesaw factor. At 10.30 p.m., the nurse administers Ativan through Adrian's central line. She falls asleep within 15 minutes. They hope her stomach will settle down overnight. The next morning, Adrian insists on going home because we have tickets to the ballet that afternoon. Since her bowel movements have ceased and we are going to return tomorrow for her chemo, Dr. Marco agrees to let her go home. He discharges Adrian at 9.15 a.m. and only one item appears on the list of medications. Milk of magnesia for constipation, 15 milliliters PRN. Adrian now has 13 prescriptions. He was a famous trumpet man from out Chicago way. He had a boogie style that no one else could play. I held the video cameras as steady as I could during Adrian's first dance performance three months ago. I had practiced all week during the rehearsals until I had her routine memorized. I knew when she and her partner Sharon would veer away from the group to perform their partner sequence. I zoomed in on them to capture their close-up. Watching them kick up their heels to the Andrews sisters tune, Boogie Woogie Bugle Boy, I couldn't help but smile. Adrian's blue ponytail whipped through the air as she spun into a pirouette and Sharon's ponytail brushed her bottom as she jumped into splits. Even though they were in the beginning dance class, their group's infectious energy had the crowd cheering. I had always wanted Adrian to love dance the way I do, but I never forced it on her. Our mother enrolled her in dance class when she was three years old. She figured if one daughter liked to dance, the other one would too. With her sullen expression and rouge on her cheeks, Adrian looked like a sad clown the night of her recital. Our mother never made her dance again. Adrian showed interest in gymnastics. Mother paid for tumbling lessons and swimming lessons, but those extracurricular activities stopped when she was fired. When I taught gymnastics at a local park in Hollywood, Adrian participated in my classes. In exchange for teaching one day per week, Adrian attended the summer program free, excluding the cost of the weekly field trips. The following year, I taught the dance drill team at Adrian's elementary school, and they won an honorable mention for creative choreography at the citywide competition. On the way home, Adrian cried on the bus because the team didn't place. Given the fact I was hired two months prior to the contest, I was proud of the girls. They did their best, but I couldn't console Adrian. She thought she could have danced better. Putting the last 36 hours behind her, Adrian focuses on what she's going to wear to the ballet. She puts on her new pink fairy shirt along with her new blue jeans that look like different sections of denim sewn together, giving the jeans a patchwork feel to them. She completes her ensemble with her new belt, her favorite blue jelly bracelets, and black eyeliner. She rubs more glitter on her head to make it sparkle. As I take pictures, I try to elicit a smile, but she gives me a parents are lame look. 
As I had hoped, the editor of the Burbank Leader called and a reporter interviewed Adrian and me a few days ago. Today, a photographer shows up to take Adrian's picture, which will accompany the story the paper is publishing next week. As I watch the photographer snapping away, I know the precise moment when he captures his perfect shot. Adrian is putting on mascara. Her eyes are wide open, and she is peering into her mirrored closet door. Snap. The photographer shoots her reflection as the mascara wand brushes her long eyelashes. I stand back near the bedroom door and wonder what Adrian is thinking. After the photographer leaves, Adrian asks me to help her with her foundation. I look so pale, sissy. The regular beige color she uses for her olive skin is too dark now, so we apply my foundation, a shade of ivory. John walks in and out of Adrian's room and asks every few minutes, are you sure this is a good idea? You just got home, kiddo. She gives him the same look she gave me when I tried to take her picture. She's going to this ballet, no matter what. I bought the tickets months ago. The truth is, I want to go too. Adrian ended up taking dance in high school by accident. Thrilled, she was able to choose from a variety of activities for her PE credit, a class she had always hated and almost failed in elementary school, she signed up for golf. However, when she came home with the list of items she would need to begin, I told her she had to choose another class. We couldn't afford to buy even a used set of golf clubs, and she didn't know she liked the sport. I suspect she chose golf because it, she wanted as little aerobic activity as possible. She didn't want to change the rest of her schedule, so Adrian chose the only other PE class that fit into that time slot, beginning dance. The first semester, she complained a lot about how clumsy she was and how she was never going to get it. When she landed a spot in the fall dance show, she refused to participate, citing stage fright as her excuse. Halfway through the school year, she liked dance more. Upon arriving home, she asked me questions such as, how do you spot when you turn, sissy? Or, how can I improve my extension? I hid my enthusiasm for her growing love of dance but I was secretly thrilled we shared a passion. John and she had music. Now, she and I had dance. When she came home and told me she was doing the spring dance show and she was auditioning for dance the following year, I hugged her. I suggested we take ballet classes together that summer to help her improve her technique, and she loved the idea. Adrian wanted to see Sylvie Gam perform after watching the ballerina execute an incredible modern dance piece titled Wet Woman. The short clip aired on television along with an interview with Sylvie, who was preparing to choreograph Giselle, a full-length classical ballet. Can we see her, sissy? Please? I was as entranced by Sylvie as Adrian was and seeing a ballet together seemed fitting, given our summer plans. In the past, I had taken Adrian to see Grease and Riverdance for her 11th and 12th birthdays, respectively. I loved taking her to see shows. It was becoming a tradition until she asked for cash on her 13th birthday. Lucky for us, Sylvie was performing with the La Scala Ballet at the Orange County Performing Arts Center. I splurged and bought the best tickets in the house. Orchestra, row A, seats three and four. Sissy, look what you did. Frustrated, Adrian peers at herself in the mirror attached to the passenger seat visor in my car. 
What? I glance over briefly, but I turn back to keep my eyes on the road. We left the house five minutes ago, and we were about to get on the freeway. My makeup. It's uneven, Adrian pouts. <sighs> I sigh and look at the clock on my dashboard. We still have time to go home and correct it. I didn't bring the foundation with us. I'll fix it. Don't worry. I pull into the liquor store parking lot in order to turn around and go back the way we came. When we arrive, John freaks out. What's wrong? Did something happen? Are you okay? He looks at Adrian. I need to fix her makeup, John. Relax. Adrian trails me into her bathroom where the light is far better than in her bedroom where we originally did her makeup. I even out the foundation as best I can, filling in the places I missed and blending with a light touch of powder. I notice ivory is too dark for Adrian's face. I suspect she's anemic, but I say nothing. Ten minutes later, we are back in the car again and on our way into Orange County. We attend a preview lecture about Giselle, which tells the history and story of the ballet. A peasant girl, Giselle, falls for a prince, but when she finds out he is betrothed to another, she goes mad and dies. In the second act, Giselle enters the land of the willies, spirits of young women who were betrayed and died before their wedding day. She ends up saving the prince from the willies, who tried to kill him by literally dancing him to his death. As we settle into our front row seats, I squeeze Adrian's hand. I'm so glad we came, sweetie. She nods as her attention focuses on the stage. Not only did Sylvia Gamm choreograph this modernized version of Giselle, but she also plays the lead role, a concept similar to an actor directing and starring in the same film. Adrian and I are both disappointed by Giselle's mad scene, the climax of Act One. Sylvie's choreography doesn't incorporate the strengths of her talent. She seems to be playing it safe. During intermission, I ask Adrian how her pain is. She missed her dilated at 2 p.m. And given what happened on Friday night, I only want to give it to her when she needs it. She says she feels fine. Distracted by our conversation, Adrian is unable to dodge out of the way when a little boy comes zipping around the corner with a chocolate ice cream cone. The top of the scoop brushes the bottom of Adrian's new shirt. Damn! I tell her we can get it out, but I'm not sure. The stain will probably set in before we get home. We return to our seats. As the Willies began their famous dance to exhaust the prince to his grave, Adrian leans over. Sissy, it hurts. What? I whisper. My side, my liver. Hold on. I fish around in my bag for the Delauded. Stupid. I should have given her some earlier. I give Adrian four milligrams while I look for water. Where is that damn water bottle? I always carry water. Meanwhile, the selfish part of me is sorry I'm missing the most interesting part of the entire ballet, but it's my fault. I'll be right back. I rush into the lobby to buy water, but I'm dismayed when I see all the vendors are closed. I see a woman counting money and I think maybe it's not too late. May I buy some water? We're closed. I know. Look. I just need one bottle. The woman stares at me as if I'm an idiot who didn't hear her the first time. Time to play the C card. My child has cancer. She needs the water to swallow her pain pills. The woman says, of course, and insists I take the water bottle. She won't let me pay for it. I sneak back into the show. Adrian takes her medication. 
the Willie's dance is over, Giselle is dead, and the prince lives happily ever after. On the way home, Adrian falls asleep in the car. That night, she has a low-grade fever, and her pain worsens. She breaks it down for me. Right lower rib, eight. Back, seven. Right shoulder, eight. Liver, eight. I get the feeling this next round of chemo is not going to be as smooth as the last one. I dread going to the hospital tomorrow almost as much as Adrian does. Thank you for watching and listening to this episode of Better Off Bald, A Life in 147 Days. Please subscribe to my channel, leave us a review on iTunes, and stay tuned for the next episode.